Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, it's Calvin here and I'm your host for today. Typically, I interview highly successful investors, but today it will be different. We are very lucky to have Varick Kaplan of Eugenesis with us. So for full disclaimer, I'm a shareholder as well. So I believe there's a lot of progress in the gene and cell therapy in the coming few years and Eugenesis will have a role to play. Eugenesis works uh, to make therapies commercially accessible and affordable for many of the patients and they have a pipeline of therapies, including one that's targeted at solving uh, diabetes. So Vera, you know, I'm very thankful for you to, to be here and for you agreeing to be a part of this uh, podcast as well. So to start off, Vera, you know, could you share with us about your background and how you became the CEO of Eugenesis? Well, my education, my background, educational background is uh, engineering. I studied all types of engineering and began with mechanical engineering and then continued on to uh, signal processing but really liked the biological part. So then continued to biological, biomedical engineering, basically focused on a lot of cell engineering. So what does it mean, cell engineering? It's basically how you get a cell, a human cell to do what you want by different means. And um, as my career kind of began, I began being an entrepreneur. <laughs> the truth of it was uh, I became an entrepreneur because I thought I would spend more time with my children this way <laughs> and found out I was a bit wrong. <laughs> Actually, entrepreneurs keep very busy, but I really enjoyed it. So, you know, I began my career in Israel. Israel is very entrepreneurial. There were a lot of clinicians looking for things to do. And I, I was lucky enough to be able to help them and work with them, different scientists. So... You know, I've had over 10 companies in the life sciences area and gradually built, uh, I would say, a global network around the world. Uh, each of the companies kind of address different areas, but focused on oncology, uh, diabetes, uh, women's health, uh, dermatology. So I, I have a very diverse background in terms of working with entrepreneurial work. So, you know, you have all these diverse backgrounds uh, and how do you end up uh, working for Eugenesis and what do you see is the value of the, of the, of the business? So, you know, when I, when I kind of began, I began with devices and then I moved on to biotech manufacturing. And then about a decade ago, you know, biotech historically is all about um, making a lot of cells and putting in a gene and harvesting the protein you want. Okay, 
So basically you're making a protein, but you're slowing the cells away. So you're not really focusing on the cells. But about a decade ago, there was a growing realization that if you want proteins to work well, you actually have to make, give the cell the chance to kind of control them, right? Because if you think of it, nothing in our body, no protein like insulin or hemoglobin or any of these proteins or antibodies work by themselves. There's always a cell controlling them. The scientists realize you really have to, if you really want to utilize, you know, the genetic evolution, our understanding of how to make proteins, you need that, that mechanism, that factory that makes the proteins to continue to support. And engineering-wise, that was fascinating, right? And I realized that a new new kind of area was, was starting. And I actually thought it would be a very niche area, okay? I did not think this was going to be a, a, an area where there's going to be thousands of products. I thought maybe there's going to be 10 products, 20. And was excited and I thought, you know, maybe this could be like a niche area. So, um, instead of, you know, me, my colleagues, we decided that we could take all our expertise for more classic biotech of making recombinant products, of uh, making plasma products, and, and use it to kind of help these very unique therapies get to patients. We did not think this was going to be like the fastest growing area in biotech. I can tell you in no way did I even imagine that. I thought this would be kind of more of like a hobby, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, the way I look at it is that, you know, in the world, you know, unfortunately, humans, we have a lot of disease, we have cancer, but fortunately, we found a cure for cancer, but we have diabetes, we have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, we have a lot of diseases that's yet to be solved. And I think the biggest problem is that it's about the client affordability and accessibility as well. So uh, one of the key things that I know about Orgenesis is about making therapies more affordable. Could you share with us how is Orgenesis attempting to solve the problem? And what do you think? Because sometimes, you know, isn't it sad that some patients, because they couldn't afford the therapy and they just die earlier, you know, what if therapies could be cheaper, what would it mean for them? You know? So what is your take on this and how is Orgenesis attempting to you know, provide a value proposition to the industry? If you think, first of all, why are these therapies so expensive? So if you look at typical biotech, right, you'll make a shelf product. It'll be a protein usually infused, injected back to the patient. And, but it's still a shelf product, okay? There's still a lot of issues with making that protein uh, storable, the supply chain, the cold chain around it. But when you get to cell and gene therapy, we're very unique, right, in terms of how our body functions, including our genetic makeup. So you're taking each patient's cells in most cases. There are some products that are shelf products, but they're not exactly, and they're not as, I would say, at least today, proven clinically as much as what we call autologous meaning it's personalized. Each patient his own drug is made. So typically when you're making a biotech drug, once you've finished making the drug, right, you sterilize it. When you sterilize something, you actually take gas or some kind of radiation and you kill everything that's alive. But these drugs are based on taking a patient's cells that are all alive and reprogramming. It's really like reprogramming them, right? Each of our cells has... It's information, it's code, it's DNA, it's epigenetic information. 
And what we're doing, we're re really putting in the software and reprogramming that cell. But you want the living part. So you have two major difficulties here. First of all, you're not making a mass production drug, right? So there's a lot of cost associated. It's like each drug is made per each person. And the second issue is you can't do this in a regular environment. It has to be an extremely clean environment because you can't sterilize the product and you don't want contaminations. You don't want to contaminate the patient with something else. So us as a company, we were facing these, this, right? We, we actually started a, a company that was providing development and manufacturing services to, to pharma companies. And we were making these drugs extremely successfully. Our batch rates were over 95%. This was unheard of in the industry, but it was still very expensive. And, and, and even though we were doing a good job, it was heartbreaking. So, you know, it was heartbreaking because you could see you could not get these drugs to as many patients who need them. And, you know, the wonderful thing about these drugs, because they're personalized, they're very efficient. They, they can cure diseases that we haven't been able to cure before. Diseases like leukemia, lymphoma. It's almost like a miracle, right? When these drugs get to patients who are very ill, but again, they're costing $400,000 per, per patient. About genetic therapies, you're talking about $1.75 million per patient. It's not sustainable. So we really decided to change the concept of how we do this. Instead of trying to do this as traditional biotech, in centralized big facilities, right, with people working inside in very clean environments, very expensive, very costly, and a very complicated logistic system of collecting the tissues, the source material from the patients and bringing them to a central location and then sending it back, we decided to change the way we think. We said, first of all, we have to reduce cost of logistics. We need to make these drugs next to the patients, next to the hospitals, at the point of care. Second of all, we have to stop making these uh, products like they've been done in a manual way. You can't have lots of technicians in very expensive, clean environment. Instead of making them in a clean room, we have to make them in a clean box. So the technicians are standing outside and it's much less expensive. And the third issue, we have to reduce the manual labor here. We have to automate these processes. So that's how we changed the way we we're doing this. We said, instead of just developing a biological process, which is actually based on reprogramming the cells. What we need to do, we need to reprogram the cells and together with that, actually add in the automations that allows us to do this in an automated manner in a closed system. And then we can actually validate this together clinically at the point of care. So we've really changed I think the concept of how we're working, we want to make the, the reprogramming, the drug, the recipe, okay, we're using on these cells, and we want to make it together with the automation that allows us to close it up and make sure it's very much standardized. And I can put it always next to each hospital, and it's exactly the same process. You can think of it as a very sophisticated coffee percolator, okay? So the way I look at it is that uh, there are some weaknesses uh, for centralized uh, clean rooms. And what you're doing right now is really removing logistics costs, uh, technician costs, and also improving 
the batch production so that you know for each therapy the cost could be uh, cheaper right and you know yes. while, while looking through how the actions corporate actions that RGCs has done you know in year 2020 you know you sold one of your main business called Master Cell which is a CDMO uh, mm-hmm. You grew it from a revenue of 3 million to close to 30 million uh, before the end of 2019. And that's incredible growth. And uh, it is very unusual because for you to sell the business and to focus on this new business model, most CEOs would not do that because especially if they are listed, you know, what, how would they be accountable to shareholders? Um, it also almost seems to signal that, you know, you're all in because um, there's no uh, turning back, you know, this is all that you're going to do. So I just wanted to find out from you, Vera, you know, what gave you that conviction that you needed to do this to build it for the long term? What are some signs that you see? Because Vera, you know, I, I don't see many CEOs do that. You know, in fact, that could be a career suicidal move if it doesn't play out, but you... you I hope not. <laughs> you know, you, you, you took the risk and, uh, and I think you're progressing on it. So uh, but anyway, like just want to off track, you know, we have seen many businesses, CEOs who have done that. And that really gave us the conviction that, you know, they are all in into this. So I uh, just want to come back to the question. What gave you that conviction? And, 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 and what are some telltale signs that tell you that this is where the industry is heading? Because it is always not easy to change the industry. So what, what gave you that motivation? So um, first of all, you know, this is personalized medicine. It's personalized both ways. It's not only personalized for the patients, it's also for the people who make the medicine. You, you meet these patients, they have a face, they have a name, they're not just a number. And, you know, we were very much in interaction with the hospitals, with the clinicians, and we could see that we were not providing them the solution they needed. I mean, it was all very good to provide this for clinical trials, for maybe 20 patients, maybe 200, maybe even 2,000. But what happens when you want to treat 2 million patients, right? It just doesn't work this centralized. So first of all, very motivating is the fact that you see the need. And you know what's amazing? That wherever you go in the world, and you know by now that I travel quite a bit because we're trying to make this globally available, right? And it doesn't matter if I talk to clinicians in Singapore, in China, in Korea, in Germany, in Spain, in Greece, in Israel, in the US, in South America, in Russia, I get exactly the same issues. We have patients, they really need therapy. We can't pay half a million dollars for therapy. We can't even, we can make it in the lab by ourselves, some of these therapies, but we can't do more than 10 patients in a lab environment. We need help to industrialize this, but we need help to industrialize this in a way that we can make it available for our patients here and now, okay? And, you know, I was getting this feedback, not only me, the entire team from every single hospital we went to. This is what we need. And, you know, when you're getting such a strong signal from the industry and you can see where it's going, yes, well, maybe we could, make a lot of money from doing, making products for clinical trials for pharma companies. But even they are now facing the same issues, right? They've finished the clinical trials. Now they want to go to to much more population. They are facing extreme difficulties. So, you know, many people in the industry say, oh, we'll just move to allogeneic. Allogeneic means you take tissues from one patient and you can give it to many patients. Well, you know, the immune system is a pretty 
pretty strong thing, I can tell you. You know, we, we very much kind of protect our own self. It's very difficult to take self from one patient to another. And even though I believe there will be advancement, still the whole beauty of cell and gene therapy is the fact that it is so personalized, that you can make these cells per patient. And when I see the advancements in this industry in terms of science, you can see that it's more and more personalized. It's not only the cell, it's actually the reprogramming is personalized per the patient's condition. So clearly there was a need. It was obvious that something needs to change. Now, what was the solution? The hospitals were telling us what the solution is. Please come and help us make this here in a way that is make it for us next to the hospital, near the patient, where we can quickly respond to patients, where we can have some kind of you know, logistics setup that makes sense. Nobody thinks of doing a bone marrow and sending all the bone marrows from all the hospitals to one central location. It just doesn't make sense, does it? So clearly there was a need. Now, what about the solution? So if the need was to make this in a way that could be easy for hospitals to have access locally, then the solution was to make it in a system that was standardized and could be copied very easily from hospital to hospital. So this is about automation. Now, remember, this is a new industry that's grown out of hospital research labs, not out of engineering companies. So actually, when you look at it from an engineer's point of view, it's really not that difficult, okay? It's, it's not that the engineering task here is so difficult that, wow, you can never do it. So when you go and talk to a biologist, well, of course, it seems very difficult. Then, what do you mean? Instead of me pipetting around in a petri dish or putting this in a, you know, in my bioreactor, now um, you're going to automate this? Well, yes, you actually do it in your kitchen when you make yourself a cup of coffee. This can be done. And so, but the real challenge was not about making the engineering. The real challenge was to make sure that. In terms of clinical development, the engineering was validated together with the biology, right? Because most companies, pharma companies said, oh, we'll, we'll do the biology step. We'll worry about making this later, okay? We'll get to that after we get our approval, we get our huge valuations, then we can deal with it. But that doesn't work in this industry because these cells, when you manipulate them, when you reprogram them, they are very sensitive. And if you start, suddenly start doing something in an automated manner, which was before done manually, you're gonna change the product. So that was the solution. The solution was to get these products once, uh, you know, because many, many of these hospitals are doing, are actually treating patients under hospital exemption or compassionate use. But instead of flushing out the clinical trials, was a biological process that is not industrialized. The real challenge was explained to the hospitals. Yes, we can help you. We can help you make these products for you at the hospital. But we have to work in a way that is, uh, I would say, responsible enough. So let us industrialize this process before you go into clinical trials. Let us put in our know-how in engineering so we can make this in a closed system where you can have it next to your hostel, 
but also give us a license that we can make it in every hospital, right? So share that knowledge so not every hospital has to invent the wheel. So we can take these beautiful therapies that have been developed in, in many major research institutes, let us validate them together in a way that it is already industrialized. Yeah, so, you know, while listening to you, I just realized that, you know, you're actually taking something and, and thinking of a long-term solution, whereas uh, maybe what we are seeing right now in the industry is the short-term solutions, right? So, you know, the pain of figuring out how to automate and really build up that uh, point-of-care locations, I think that's something that is, is new. And I think, you know, I'm so glad to have you here to really explain to us how it works together because, you know, whenever there's a new industry being created, you know, there seems to be very low take-up you know, I just remember uh, Tesla, you know, pushing the idea of electric cars. Uh, that wasn't <laughs> well accepted, but it, it took a tipping point, uh, uh, inflection point before, you know, the world realizes that, hey, you know, electric cars is the way to go as well. So I certainly hope that, you know, point of care, I could see the merits, I could see the benefits, not just for the hospitals, but also for uh, the patients as well. So I want to find out because, you know, earlier on, we are discussing about uh, healthcare uh, therapies, about half a million that costs a lot. So maybe through um, uh, our genesis or maybe through uh, the industry, you know, we are able to reduce the cost. But if we are able to reduce the cost, that also means that we potentially could reach out to more people. So uh, could you share with us a little bit? Because what does it mean for your company? Does it mean that uh, you'll be a more, you're doing this, but uh, how does it translate to the revenues and, and, and the profits? Will, will it be, you're able to address a bigger uh, population and something yeah. like that yeah so that's exactly what you know when you say i took a big risk in selling masks <laughs> first of all i didn't see it as a risk i think for uh cdmo which we sold at 10 times the revenue was the right point in time because think of it our customers were maturing into the market and mm. now we needed to think of how to solve the problem not of making uh, a drug for 50 people or 100 people, but how do you make it for millions, right? So my point of view is better to make a drug for millions of people and maybe make only $20,000 per patient or $10,000 per patient instead of making a drug for 100 people and making $100,000 per patient. It's just my point of view. It's, it's actually a less risky business, if you think about it, right? When you're depending on only 100 patients, you are actually taking a lot of risk because the, the numbers change very quickly. But if you can get a product out to millions of people, then you're actually building up a substantial business, right? With a strong revenue in the future. Now, when we, we look at this, we analyze the cost of making these drugs. So if you, we believe at least that if we can take these drugs and reduce the logistics, reduce the manpower, reduce you know, all this clean room uh, economics, our goal is to get it to a tenth of the cost. Now, maybe it'll take us a few years, but even if we cut the cost in half in a year or two, we've already done so much, right? So, okay, not every goal has to be okay, now I want to get to $50,000 per product. But even providing a product at $150,000 is a huge difference than $500,000. So even, first of all, we take a step-by-step -step approach. Maybe we haven't automated everything, but okay, we've taken a lot of the cost away, right? 
Maybe we, we're not perfect yet, but during the clinical development, we can improve the automation steps. We can get step-by-step step, get this product cost down. And it's not only about the cost of the product, it's also about the cost of development, right? Because if we're working in partnership with the hospital, clinical trials are costing much less. We're not charging. The cost of us manufacturing for the clinical trials is much less. So, and remember, we have a network. So we're working with many hospitals together. So if you want to do a clinical trials for 100 patients and you've got 10 hospitals involved and each doing 10 patients, that's a big difference. And if the hospital is doing this at cost and not charging a pharma company a huge amount of money for clinical trials, that's reducing the cost of development. So even time of development, cost of development, all of this actually allows us to get these products to market in a quicker way and in a lower cost. So even the payback I need to get for investing is much less. So the truth of the matter that, you know, when we started building out this network and thinking how we could reach as much population as we could, we realized we can't do this alone. We need to find the local distribution and manufacturing partners. We need the people who are already located in this area, who understand very well the regulatory, local regulatory mechanism, have a strong relationship with the hospitals so they can work very closely with them. And we looked for our JV partners, which are actually on one hand distribution partners and on the other hand manufacturers, right? They partner with us in placing our mobile manufacturing units, what we call our ampules, right? Our Genesis mobile production units and lab. And, and we can talk about that later. But building this distribution network allows us actually to access these major local research hospitals. And what we requested from our distributors, we said, look, this is not a high cost in development here, but there's still a cost. The hospitals are willing to work at a very low cost for clinical trials. Our manufacturing costs are very low, but we have our own internal research, cl clinical research system, so we don't have to pay a tremendous amount of money to CROs. So we can really reduce the local cost, but we're still working in different areas, right? So if you want to be our distributor, if you want to sell out drugs on that market, you have to commit to doing the clinical trials, getting the local regulatory validations, and we'll commit to making sure we develop the right equipment so you can manufacture on site, and we'll partner with you on that. So that's what we built. We built, we have 10 joint venture distribution partners, right, which work with a leading research institute. And I believe once they validate each of these partners, one or two, three major research centers, they can very quickly after that expand to as many centers as needed. So that's what we need. And that's what we've built in the past year, a strong network of distributors that are highly committed. They've committed to paying the cost for, this, uh, for the regulatory approval of these drugs. They actually pay us for any support we need to give them. So that's revenue for us. And they give us a share of the royalty for any manufacturing done in the hospital. And they are supporting us during the clinical development phase. There is revenue coming in from uh, what's known as hospital exemption. It's less in the US, 
US they have more glands and that's why in the US we're not working with a distributor, we're actually working directly. But we are making some revenue on supply. We are making revenue on local support to our licensing out. So we are sustainable as a system and we can really support these hospitals and these developments in many, many ways. Barrett, you know, a lot of businesses always seem to take the easy way out, but uh, based on your management style, you know, you really wanted to uh, build that foundation, you know, and, and you know, I, I always have this analogy in my head. It's like a bamboo, you know, it takes time to, to get a firm, root, a firm rooting first, then it starts to grow uh, really, really well. And I, I know just now, um, you know, you mentioned about uh, OMPI, which is the Origenesis Mobile Processing Unit Labs. Um, I think this could be a new concept for, for many people, even for me when I first uh, 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 saw it. Uh, so could you share with us to the extent that you are able, uh, what is uh, OMPI uh, all about? And um, if you could, you know, are there any feedback from your customers who, to, who mentioned about OMPI, uh, what is the experience and, and uh, something along the lines as well? Sure. So remember when we're actually, what we're doing here, we're reprogramming cells. I mean, when you think of the cell and gene therapy business, it's an information business, okay? That's what we do. I mean, it's not like you, when you make a different drug, you're collecting source material, building something chemically up or whatever. Here, you're taking the patient's own cells and you're re-educating them, you're reprogramming them. So what are you actually utilizing is the software to reprogram these cells, right? It's really an information-based industry. So very much like the early days of uh, you know, computers, when there was like a mainframe computer and everybody had to go to a central place, right? What we, do, what we are doing here is actually decentralizing that. So you need the hardware, okay? It's, you know, before there was good hardware, there was no good software, right? It, but as the hardware developed, as companies like Apple developed systems that could be located, and decentralize and you could do your own processing so that the software improve. So typically hospitals that have tried to do these therapies have built clean rooms. These are very small clean rooms, they're very expensive and very difficult for the hospitals. And many of the hospitals that are very much interested in working with us don't have clean rooms. So, you know, we did not want to start building up clean rooms, even to place our automation, even to do the validations. So we said, look, we'll just make a mobile unit. It's about a size of a container, right? Looks like a little lab. It's very, very standardized. But the important thing about the ampule, it's not, you know, you can buy pods, for instance, that are like clean rooms. Ampules are not just mobile clean rooms, they're very sophisticated inside. They're sophisticated because they actually allow parallel processing. They have isolated units inside and they do have a small manual section. So if there's a part of the process that still needs to be done in a manual, we're not waiting, you know, as I explained before, we don't have to wait until everything is fully automated. But if you, let's think of a typical clean room, okay? You can, a patient comes in, let's take a call T, okay? Take his T cells, these are the immune cells that attack the cancer, right? You bring them into the clean room, you genetically modify them, and then you have by adding in, you know, a gene that makes something that can really catch the cancer in the patient. So now you have a well-educated 
immune cell or reprogrammed immune cell, now you have to make a lot. Of, and that takes a lot of time. It can sometimes take three weeks. In some therapies, it even takes more. So you have this whole clean room now completely dedicated to that patient. That means that everything is happening. You don't want cross-contamination. If you really work cleverly, maybe you can do two patients at a time, being really careful not to cross-contaminate these patients, right? But think of it in a typical clean room. You can't do, you can't reprogram, you can't process more than 20 patients a year. So ampules work very differently. Patient comes in, if there's a small manual step, you will do it. But then it goes into a completely isolated unit, which inside sits the automation. And then for the next two, three weeks, while these cells are being expanded, process, you can already bring in the next patient and put them into the next isolated, okay? So it's a very different process than working in a cleaner. It allows you parallel processing, parallel programming of cells. It also, so it really heightens the capacity and more important than that, I have seen in numerous cases when you're moving a process, even from one clean room to another, because they're different, because the HVAC system's different, because something is different, you will have issues because the cells are so sensitive. This is very standardized. No matter where it's sitting, it's exactly the same system. And you can move it. So let's say today a hospital really needs a lot of work and 100 patients, but tomorrow it needs 200 patients. So, okay, if you want to build clean rooms, not to talk about the bureaucracy, okay, of building a clean room, getting real estate approvals, health approvals, budget approvals, everything. I mean, you're talking about three years training the people, which can take six months. You can now bring in a mobile, new mobile unit, just copy paste, and it takes you three months. And maybe you need to do some validation runs, but it's a much quicker process. You want to work in another hospital? Okay. Now you're sending exactly the same unit. So you can expand much quicker. You can allow for growing capacity and you can have a very high standardization of what's happening in these units. Wow, that, that's really very interesting because I, I do know of a lot of therapies that could not work because cells are really sensitive. You know, like sometimes when they travel for more than six hours, 10 hours, they don't survive. And that could means that certain therapies could not reach to their patients effectively, right? And using point of care, you know, I, I, I find that, you know, based on your explanation, it seems to be a lot better. And I think that it would definitely drive down the cost as well. And I think also you mentioned how it's being designed um, the quality check, um, the production capability is it, a lot better as well. So I think there's uh, clear benefits using Ampuse. And also based on your annual report, I think uh, you mentioned that uh, over time you would expect to have uh, 30 Ampuse on several locations around the world. So could you share with us, you know, uh, is, is it on track and, and is there an Ampuse that is already uh, on site that's probably being used by one of your customers? So, you know, these are validation ampules. They're being tested in better sites. I've not made public where and exactly when, but I think our program is on plan. I mean, I wish I could even get it quicker because I know there's a lot of demand and people are really waiting for these units because we want to validate them, right? We want to make sure they're done properly. We need to get, you know, approval, shipments, everything. But I think our plan, I think we, our goal was to have 30 sites working. I mean, a site can have more than one ampule, okay? And that's not, it wasn't 30 ampules. That's what we want for validation purposes. We may have more, 
ampules in these sites. And maybe, you know, we're running two or three different systems in parallel. And uh, I think, you know, the goal is not, I mean, an ampule is an ampule. That's not, a, it's really not a big, huge engineering task. I mean, it, it, not to understate, you know, the hard work my team has put into that because it really put, made them very clever and very, I think, efficient and flexible and adaptable. But I think, you know, okay, that's an engineering goal, putting in these units in place. I think the more important goal is running these therapies through them under a regulatory framework. And I think we are beginning to do that this year. Things are going nicely. I'm hoping to see more and more of these therapies being introduced into the ampules and running under some kind of regulatory framework. Yeah. Um, and that I think is where we can have a very steep inflection point, okay? Because I mean, the system as it is, even under clinical trials is economically sustainable, I believe for the genesis, but it will be very exciting once we've got a full validation for one of these units and we can start spreading them to more than Yeah. Because I would like to see them in 300 units, right? Yeah, and the way I look at it, you know, it's not often where, you know, uh, maybe for investors like myself, you know, a lot of times when we see profits of a company, we also know that, you know, especially for a company like yours, you know, when there's profit that's earned by audiences, we know that, you know, there are good that's coming out of the business model, you know. So that is also uh, very uplifting, especially for investors to see that, you know, the world is progressing and if audiences does well, it also means that the patients are also doing well. And I think uh, you talk about therapy, so we'll, we'll come to that uh, later on. So I want to talk about one of the exciting things that I, that I see in your company because um, if I'm not wrong, um, today it's uh, in Singapore, it's 1st May 2021, um, so I, I did look through some of your uh, LinkedIn and I, and I noticed that you have very capable talents, uh, board of directors, uh, advisory uh, board as well. Um, and that is highly unusual for a company that's uh, 200 million in market capitalization. Um, so I do think that, you know, uh, uh, maybe could you highlight to us more about the culture of the company and the quality of people that's on board your mission? Because uh, again, for a $200 million company, I don't usually see such incredible talents. And uh, is there any kind of talent that you want to highlight to us for the investors to, to take note of as well? So, you know, one thing that I, I, I really appreciate in working with Genesis is the dedication of the team. Uh, you know, it really amazes me how, how dedicated over years these people have been to our goal to get these therapies to patients. And, you know, our Genesis culture is not that, you know, we have big management and, the, you know, little workers. It's not like that. We really work very, very much in groups and together, very much connectivity. So think of it in each of our region centers, we've got people working, right? So let's take our, um, our CRO work a clinical research. We're very lucky to have Professor Heiko Funderlein, uh, who is our chief medical officer. He's very experienced in clinical research. He's very experienced in cell and gene therapy. So he's kind of trying to make sure that the clinical trials are all harmonized, provide that support, working in partnership with you know, different groups. But he works very closely with these different groups. Or let's take, um, 
some of the people we have, uh, um, Fat, who's the CEO of our Israeli subsidiary, but also heads our, our therapy division, right? So um, her dedication is very high. I mean, she's been working so hard in the last three years just to get these therapies out to market. I think we have amazing quality assurance, uh, uh, for instance, which is very important. Our head of quality, he's uh, Vincent, uh, he's um, the former VP of, I think, of quality for GSK. Uh, we had the wonderful opportunity to work with him also in Master Cell. He's so experienced that we all learn from him and he's very dedicated and works so nicely with all of the, you know, people who may be less experienced because we want a quality system to standardize the activities in each of those sites, right? So we have so many tremendous people we work with. I, I really like working with my board of directors because I think the one thing that really uh, makes them very unique, they've all been successful entrepreneurs many times over. They've all started their own companies. They've all not once, not twice been successful with these companies. They understand what it means to build a company from nothing to, to really achieve goals and why you need to work step-by-step step to achieving those goals. So I'm very lucky as a CEO. I mean, most of the people in our company are PhDs, are researchers or engineers, right? But you know, one of the things that I really like, nobody's like, uh, you know, he's too important to do some kind of work. Everybody chips in for whatever is needed. And what's wonderful to see is all these different cultures working together, right? Because we have US scientists working with uh, uh, Asian scientists, with European scientists, with Israeli scientists. I mean, we have scientists and engineers from all over the world working together. Um, and it's, it's really great to see how each group brings in its, its specialty, its capability. Some cases you have groups that are better maybe in, engine, in production, others in marketing, others in clinical work. So, you know, I say this sometimes, I joke about this and I say, well, you know, we all have a common, common enemy disease that brings us together. But it's, it's, I find it very interesting to see how people from all over the world are, have the same goals and working towards the same targets. It's, it's almost like United Nations having uh, different people. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think that's the, that's the beauty, right? Because uh, different countries may have their own uh, progress. Uh, sometimes if you think about it, if the world truly works together, I, I don't think there's anything that we cannot solve like over time. So... Um, that's what I noticed about your company as well. You have very highly qualified uh, people. And again, you know, it's, it's highly unusual. Uh, and, and I think uh, there must be something that you are doing right that, that's, uh, you know, allowing these people to be attracted to, you know, work for you. Um, maybe I just want to drive another question here because, um, you know, Origenesis, you know, the ability to attract, you know, high talent, uh, high quality people, it's, it's, it's that, you know, uh, I think they are also proud to, to show that they are working for Orgenesis on uh, in LinkedIn as well. Um, but I do know that in this gene and cell therapy industry, you know, there are a lot of competitors and a lot of funding is going into it like every year, you know, we have the numbers, you know, it's, it's, it's in billions. So we just think yes. about 
maybe the work that Origins is, is doing, you know, who knows, there could be someone that is doing something similar. We may not know. I, I may not know, you know, although to the best of my ability, I'm researching about it. I don't find a exact comparable. So I just wanted to ask you this question uh, because being a CEO as well, I think you're aware about uh, competitors. Uh, although we are here to serve, I mean, the patients more importantly, but also to, to demonstrate that we, you are the best in what you do. So I just want to find out what some of your unique capabilities or advantages that you see uh, over the rest. Because I, I mean, I'm saying this because I know like the industry works together to advance certain um, therapies, but uh, what are some uniqueness that you see in your business that prevents others from copying what you're doing? So first of all, we've been doing this for over a decade. Right? <laughs> so, you know, over time, you just gain experience. We just started doing this earlier than anyone else. And it takes a lot of time to learn. There's a lot of know-how involved in this industry. It's not something you can just take a script off the internet and learn how to do. There's really very in-depth know-how for many, many people around the world that work with us. So it's not accumulated with one person, right? So we have this kind of beehive intelligence here with people all over the world contributing and bringing that together. So that's one thing that I think makes us very unique. The other thing that, you know, when you talk about competitors, typically when you look at industry place, players, you have companies that make engineering tools. Well, they're not a competitor. We love collaborating with them. If someone has developed a good engineering tool that we can use, that's great. We incorporate it into the ampule and it's great for them because it's a market entry for them, right? If somebody is developing a therapy, they're not our competitor. We can collaborate. If they have a problem manufacturing and providing and processing their products, limited capacity, they can partner with us and we can help provide it in our network. We're certainly not competing with the hospitals. So in many ways, you know, asking who do we compete with? We're not a competitor, we're an enabler. We're kind of a missing link in this industry, which allows the therapy companies to get the job done, the hospitals to get the job done, and the engineering companies to get the job done. So in many ways, you can think of us as really something that connects and works together with the industry. If another company will want to do that and will do that better than we do, I just think it's going to take them many years to accumulate the therapies, the technologies, the know-how. So for me, it's not, I don't worry about competition. I mean, well, of course, if, the, if I think of competition, I think of it more long-term. And many people tell me, oh, you know, there won't be autologous products. It'll all be allergenic shelf products. I disagree with that very much. And everything about our industry and our global economy shows us this is not what is happening. Things are being decentralized. And if you can, and personalized, right? So there's more data, there's more precision, there's more capability to analyze per patient. So as I said before, when I look at this industry, I look at it where we are providing the software and placing the hardware. It doesn't, we're bringing that together. It doesn't mean we have to compete with other software companies or therapy companies, right? We can incorporate them. 
We don't have to compete with other hardware companies. We can collaborate with them and incorporate them into our systems, into our mobile units. What we need is to make sure that this industry comes together. And because that's what patients need, that's what hospitals need, that's what the healthcare system needs. And, you know, our world, more and more people, right? Getting warmer, that's a good, I would say, petri dish for all kinds of problems arising, right? And personalized medicine, cell and gene therapies, they are the hope for so many diseases and they will protect us humans, humanity, right? From these threats as we learn to stabilize our environment. We can, this is knowledge that was developed using you know, taxpayers' money all over the world. This is knowledge developed in universities. This is knowledge developed in hospitals, academic institutes. This is not know-how coming out of big pharma. And all of us, everyone needs to be able to enjoy that, right? And in order for that to become a reality, we have to work together. And yes, I think in terms of profitability, of course, there's tremendous profit in that. I mean, nobody thought, why do we need the internet before there was an internet, right? So we're building a bionet, right? So, and it's, it's actually all the tools are there to build it, okay? But somebody needs to provide it. So just like those internet providers, those bionet providers, and once this becomes validated, I think everybody will enjoy it. You know, Verit, I always felt that you are a visionary and just now when you're speaking about all this, it kind of gave, gave me some goosebumps. Uh, but I, I think that's the hardest, right? When you're visionary, uh, people might not buy into ideas so quickly. And, and I'm so glad that you are doing uh, this interview uh, with me. Um, you know, I, I really truly believe, uh, you know, in patient affordability, accessibility, and just making things better. And I think the point where you mentioned about, you know, instead of competing or, uh, with one another, let's think about, how can we work together, right? And I think the best way is by being a platform and, and sharing resources. And that's how you could really accelerate a lot of things. Um, so, you know, just now you talk about therapies. Um, so I just want to move on to the uh, section where we talk about uh, the therapies that Argentinus is doing, you know. So I do know you are doing uh, immuno-oncology, uh, vascular, uh, kidney, viral diseases. But currently, you know, I think Argentinus may have some uh, resources consideration. Uh, and maybe, you know, from, from my point of view, you know, or maybe some investors may look at uh, Argentinus and thinking that, hey, you know, uh, is Argentinus doing too many therapies at once? Do you have a concern like that? Or do you feel that it's much better to focus on a few therapies? Because, you know, if we look at your investor presentations, there's so many therapies that Argentinus is working all at once together. So what, what's your view on that? So remember, I mean, we as a CDMO, when we were a CDMO, we were also working on many, many therapies together, right? So that's nothing new for us. Before, maybe we had 40 customers. Each one had a different therapy. So I think we know how to handle ourselves in terms of working on multiple. And remember, it's not just Genesis doing this work. It's not a financial burden for us because when do we license this therapy from a hospital? When do we start working on it? We show it to our JV partners and we ask them, are you interested in this? Are you willing to fund this activity? If they are, 
then that therapy becomes almost like a product, right? Something we license out. So we license in and we license out. And working in this way, you can even think of us as almost an open source biotech company, right? So it's not when you say, yes, it's all Genesis therapies, but the work is being done by the entire network, right? What we need to be able is to provide the support needed by each of our partners. So if they need clinical research organization, okay. But a clinical research organization that's providing a service, it can have many, many customers, okay? Maybe they need training, but a training company has many customers, right? And just like before, when we were contact manufacturing, we had many, many companies, many, many therapies. That's part of what's providing. So we'll, part of our goals is to show that we can work in parallel that we can provide this infrastructure that will allow many products together to be developed and to be supplied. So we work in a very systematic approach around each therapy. And it's not like we now have, uh, have to do all the clinical work. This is mostly being done by our partners, right? All right, understood. Uh, that, that's, that's a lot of clarity. So, you know, among all the therapies that... Uh, Agencies and your network is working on. Are there any particular uh, therapies that you are most excited about, or potentially, you know, we may see there's some progress being made and there's some commercialization uh, being done? Because I I know you have some products that are available for sale, and some you are working through the phase one to two to three. So, are there any therapies that you are particularly excited about, and and could you share with us why as well? Well, you know, that's like asking a mother. Uh, which kid she prefers, you know, I immediately feel guilty. What do you mean? That therapy isn't important. So, no, I mean, I think all therapies are great. Some may have a quicker time to market or a quicker pathway, regulatory pathway, okay? So remember, something's very unique about these therapies, right? In some ways, you could almost think of them not as a product, but as a treatment, right? So there's someone in the middle, right? They're not exactly, it's not a something you, you buy off the shelf in the pharmacy in a box, right? But it's not exactly a clinical procedure like a bone marrow transplantation. They live in this world that's somewhere in the middle. And that does not mean they're not efficient for patients, right? But when we look at these therapies, also the regulatory agencies understand this. So remember, in the beginning, they were all made by hospitals, like treatments, right? And, you know, made in the lab and provided for the patient. So it was completely a treatment done under hospital procedures. But then pharma came in and the regulator came in and said, no, no, this has to be done like a drug. This has to be done under good manufacturing practice, GMP. So suddenly the hospitals lost that ability, right? And what do we give? We give the hospitals back that ability. Right? using our mobile units. They don't have to send the products out to a factory that's under the GMP. They can work under a decentralized kind of GMP system. They can work close to home. The regulators have also seen this issue. And in many countries, in Asia, in Europe, in Germany, there's a, there's a special unique kind of regulatory mechanisms put in place to allow hospitals to continue to treat patients, okay? So some of these therapies do not have to wait two, three, four, five years or however needed, okay? They can already start being provided to patients under hospital exemptions. 
So, you know, we have orthopedic products that we're looking at, uh, some of the immune oncology are done under hospital intervention. And, and many of these therapies, before we license them, they were already used on patients under these procedures, under, but again, made inefficiently in a lab. So I think when we look at the immune oncology area, many of the products there, especially the CAR-Ts, I think we can provide unique pathways to get them as quickly as possible, at least to some geographical areas. Uh, on the orthopedic area, I think we have some options. And, you know, it's really, it's not that I'm more excited about one therapy or another. I'm excited about getting therapies to patients. And wherever and whichever therapy we can do that, that will be our focus, right? Right, thanks. Thanks so much for the answer as well. So, um, and also, a very you know the the reason why I decided to get you on to this podcast as well because, uh, you do not behave like a typical Wall Street CEO who just wants to. Sometimes they may uh, want to show great results to investors uh, because share price is often is a reflection of their performance in the company, and so I think last quarter. What you did was uh, very interesting. I think you actually put forward many years of R&D development costs and we could have just spent it maybe in this year, in this quarter, next quarter, a few quarters later, but you decided to spend it earlier. And, you know, given that you're hiring such high quality people, um, I, I think they, they do not come cheap as well, right? And I think a lot of business, uh, especially CEOs, they don't feel comfortable having a profit and loss statement that is negative, you know, so what does it speak to investors? You know, investors may lose confidence after a while. But, you know, if, if I guess through this interview, if investors truly understand what you're doing, um, then, you know, these losses is, are just temporary, you know, the way I look at it. So, you know, currently we, you know, as investors, we look at the financials of the company. I don't think it's, it's not very apparent yet what's the potential of the business. Uh, but to your best of your ability, could you share with us, let's say, if things go well for the therapies or on pills, typically, how would you see the financials uh, change uh, over time? So, first of all, you know, we had the same issues with MasterCell. I mean, I quarter after quarter, I would get complaints from shareholders saying, why are you investing so much? And I'd say, well, we're building capacity. I mean, that will pay off. So it's very difficult in this area where projects typically take two, three years to judge a company quarter by quarter. Once you've built capability and capacity, you've built a tremendous capability for a revenue stream in the future. Yes, maybe it takes more than three months. You have to be a little bit patient, but it doesn't take 10 years. It takes a year or two and you start seeing that capacity pay off, okay? So in the past, it was capacity to provide us a therapy for our customers. Now it's a capacity to provide the services for our partners, our licensed therapies, for our therapies. But again, that's what's revenue generating, right? If they can, if we can license out the therapies, if we can get support and paid for uh, supporting the R&D, we can get royalties on providing these therapies in the hospitals, we are generating a revenue stream. In order to do that, we need products to sell, therapies, and we need capacity to mix them on fuels, right? So the investment, okay, per site is really, if you look at the revenue stream that can come from it in the future, it's really minimal, especially when you, our investment is in developing these 
ampules in these systems and putting them out there and support. But a lot of the rest of the investment is actually coming from our partners. So they're willing to invest a lot of money and a lot of uh, effort to support these therapies coming into the market. And we are sharing that revenue, right? We are enjoying that revenue uh, stream in the future. Another thing that's important to remember, and this we saw again uh, in Manchester, most of these products, before you start generating revenue from actually producing them, you need this tech transfer development stage, which you are paid for under a development revenue stream. So accounting laws in terms of, you know, when you're providing work on, for development, you can have revenue recognition only once you've finished the job, okay? So maybe, you know, we've been working for a few months, but the revenue recognition only comes in once we've finished a certain task. So it's really not a good idea anything in this industry to judge quarter by quarter or even on an annual basis. You need to look at the picture as it expands. And you may have fluctuations, but you'll see these fluctuations are going up. And that's what we saw in master cell as well, right? Revenue was doubling, expenses were going higher, of course, because you were already building all the capacity for the next year. So I asked my shareholders, you know, to be a little bit patient not judge us on a quarterly level. And I think one of the things I've seen over the years that I've had tremendous support from many of our major shareholders, because they see, you know, yes, I know sometimes CEOs under a lot of pressure, you know, to show quarter by quarter. And it's, it's, it's very tempting sometimes, oh, you wanna look good and everybody will be very happy. And sometimes you need to wait a quarter or two to get those results. So I think many of our major shareholders have learned to trust us by now. And when you look at the, the investments we've done into this area, many of these investments, you know, are very similar to the investments we did in the past, but in a lead this in an I'd say a distributed model. Okay. So instead of maybe setting up in the cleanums of one place, right? Maybe they're spread over. But that in return, allow us later on to generate the revenue we needed. Wow, Barrett, you know, uh, thanks for explaining. I think a lot of time investors are just focusing too much on the profit and loss, but they do not see what's happening in, in actual ground. Uh, so in a way, I, I do think that uh, you have explained it uh, really well, and that brought a lot of new understanding to how investors should be evaluating uh, the business model. You know, so very, you know, it's not easy to do what you do. You know, sometimes, uh, especially when you mentioned about how what you did with Master Cell, uh, there were some investors who were not patient. There was some misunderstanding, uh, but you always remained focused. You always remained very steady. Um, you know, you have you have built Master Cell. You have sold Master Cell. Created the Opio concept. I think work with many hospitals on their therapies as well. So along this journey of being a CEO of Orgenesis, uh, not easy, but definitely, I guess, rewarding. I, I could tell uh, you are enjoying the work that you do as well. So were there any personal sacrifices that you made during this journey that you felt that uh, was really worthwhile and, you know, that, that, you know, something like that? So, you know, of course, there's always personal sacrifices, but, you know, that's what I like to think about as people, right? When, when you look at cells in a body, right? 
they they each they work together, right? The one body. And you know, you don't see uh, a skin cell, you know, saying, "Oh, you know, I'm more important than a heart cell." <laughs> okay, you need everything to work together. And it's not that I would say a skin cell sacrifices itself to the environment so <laughs> other cells can be, you know, can be protected. It doesn't work that way. We're all part of something, right? And you know, when a cell forgets its part of the body, when it forgets that, that it, it becomes an ignorant cell, right? That's what happens. It doesn't remember it's connected to everything else. It doesn't feel that sense of belonging to everything. And we call that type of cell a cancer cell, right? <laughs> it's actually a cell that is threatened. It goes back to very, I would say, uh, primitive mechanisms of survival when we were all one cellular creatures. <laughs> That's what happens, right? It's like, oh, I don't belong here. I just have to replicate myself so there'll be a lot of me, but nothing of anything else. Now, looking from the outside, we can see that's not a very productive mechanism, right? Being a cancerous cell in the end, you destroy yourself, right? But being a cell that is part of something makes you, you know, makes a healthy body, a healthy society. So I don't want to be a cancerous cell, okay? <laughs> I don't see things as sacrifice. I think we all have our beautiful role to play, right? We all have something to contribute, to be part of. I mean, the fact that I'm a CEO doesn't make me more important than anybody else who works in the company, okay? Or anybody else in general. It's about doing what we do best. I've been very blessed and very lucky to have the chance to work in many areas of biotech, okay? Play many roles see many different types of technology, build a network, work with wonderful people from all over the world. It's a blessing, right? I've received that as a gift in my life. And I really enjoy that I can utilize all that know-how I've accumulated and the wonderful people I've met who helped me and actually try to disperse that back to, you know, to society. And I also enjoy the economic challenge. I really believe in the importance of building sustainable companies. A lot of biotech companies, you know, they're talking about 10 years of phase three. I, I mean, okay, that's their model. But even when I had a cosmetic company or dermatology company, I was trying to find a sustainable model to sell cosmetics. Even as a Selling gene company. I was trying to find a sustainable model and an economic model as a CDMO. And today, as of Genesis, one of the things that is most important for me is making sure it's sustainable because we want to provide a platform for many therapies, right? We want to make this industry sustainable as a whole. And Genesis has to have revenue, it has to grow. So even though, yes, I do believe very much in the ideology of the company. It's very important to me what we do, as I believe it is for every single person who works in the company. But I believe that in order to do our job well, we have to do so in a way that it is economically beneficial. 
for the company, for our shareholders. You know, you can't have a healthy body if you're not feeding it well. <laughs> and if you're not, you know, balancing energy and making sure you have the potential for growth. So that's how I see it. And that's how I see my role in the company. And that's how I see the company's role in the industry. Well, you know, to, to really share with you my thoughts after hearing from you, you know, you know sometimes I think, would a female CEO be, be better than a male CEO? I'm not so sure, but uh, it seemed like you really provide a, a motherly uh, instinct, the personality and, and the companies like your baby. You have to make sure that the foundations are strong, make sure that it's sustainable, that one day, you know, when it grows up, it could be standing on its two feet. And, um, you know, that's, that's really uh, something that I'm hearing from you. And I think that's uh, really important because at the end of the day, if, you, if all of us wants to build something long-term, then we got to think about doing things systematically and, and getting things done uh, correctly. And I think um, seem like uh, you, you do have that kind of understanding to really build organizations to that, uh, to that level, you know. And I also see that, you know, from your background, you talk about how engineering uh, background to help you industrialize the manufacturing process for the gene and cell therapies. And I just want to say that, you know, that this interview has been uh, truly enlightening, um, really insightful. Um, and also, before we end this uh, short interview, are, are there some things um, that you wish for more people to know about uh, the future of agencies, or maybe uh, people may not fully understand about your company that you would like to share uh, in this interview? Well, thanks, first of all, for your very warm words. And for me, it's very important to, to interview, to be interviewed, to speak to people. Um, you know, maybe it's again my motherly approach. I want to be educational, but it's more than that. Okay. I, I why is it so important for me that people understand what Genesis is about? And it's part of Genesis being a public company, right? I mean, the, it's not just saying to people, oh, look, we're doing something great. It's telling them you can be a part of this, you can be a shareholder, you can help make this a better place by making a more, uh, I would say, economically sustainable model for health growth. So you can join us as shareholders. That's what's great about being a public company. It opens up the option for everybody to have some influence. It's very democratic in some ways, right? So I want people to know about Genesis. I want them to be proud of being shareholders of Genesis. And I also think, you know, Cell and gene therapies, it's not something, it's not just a new industry. It's going to impact the lives of all of us eventually, right? It's a, you know, as I said, when we, be, I began the company, when we began working in this company a decade ago, there were barely 20 clinical trials going on. Now there's hundreds and maybe even thousands, and it's growing so quickly, right? Just like going back to the software industry, right? I mean, the moment you have better hardware, you have better software. You have more connectivity. You have more knowledge accumulation. It's it's really something that pushes itself. So I can see and you know take any market research report. You'll see there's a huge lack of capacity in the industry. So obviously this is going to impact the lives of all of us. And when we say cell and gene therapies, what are we talking about? We're talking about the most basic human thing. It's our cells, our genes, 
okay? That's what we're using here. It's our own basic identity. So it's, you know, I think that we should have some control on it. We don't want to live in a world, right? Where some people can live 50 years longer or be fully, for instance, vaccinated against the virus because they have half a million or a million dollars, right? We wanna live in a society, small, equal, okay? That everybody has a chance to enjoy the science and this, you know, there's already enough inequality, economical inequality in the world. We don't need it to be inequality, a biological genetic inequality. That would be terrible, right? And furthermore, when we wanna, you know, think about what we want, cell and gene therapies hold the promise of really getting rid of some of the most devastating things about human disease. So since it's ours, it's our cells, our genes, we should all have an interest in this and making the know-how that is hiding inside our bodies, making it accessible to everyone, to us. And that's why I think it's very important, you know, that people learn about this area, that they understand what we're trying to do. I mean, if people think that the software industry and the internet impacted their lives, they should think about how much genetic technologies are gonna impact the lives of everyone in the future and how much we want that to be done in a way that is beneficial to everyone, accessible to everyone. And why, of course, for any company in the space who can make that a reality, there is a lot of economic value that can be shared between many partners, but certainly we can enjoy. Barrett, I, I guess this is the reason why I, I finally understood why you are able to attract very high quality uh, people because, you know, what you mentioned, the vision, I, I think it's really what all of us want at the end of the day. You know, we have family members, we have close ones, we have, we have known of people who have cancer, we have known of people who get crushed by their medical bills. Um, and that's why I, I think it's really so important that, you know, Archie is doing what you're doing and... Personally, I also think that, you know, I just feel that, you know, the world is definitely heading towards a path where we start to see more uh, commercial viable therapies. I, I really truly believe in that uh, mm -hmm. in our lifetime because, you know, in the past, what, what is light? What is electricity, right? And now yes. you're pushing a, a new frontier and uh, definitely I see you as a visionary and sometimes, you know, we definitely need people like you to, to really believe something is possible, right? To have the faith. You know, because in the past, you know, we talk about electric cars, people say, why, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not possible. But now uh, we, we see that happening as well. So, you know, I just want to share that um, I'm very proud to be a shareholder as well. And thank I think you. this is a, a great way to, to end the interview. And, and, you know, thanks for sharing so much uh, because this interview, I planned to be one hour, but it's close to one hour, 30 minutes. Uh, and I know you, I know you are busy. I know you are busy, but, you know, I, you know, for every answer that you put out and you shared, you know, it came from your heart and I want to thank you so much. So with that, thank you so much for being on this interview once again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Cabezor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.